Hey, friends! Welcome to Talking by Myself. I'm your host, Layla Rosa. Yay! This is episode six of Talking by Myself. I'm your host, Layla Rosa. Sometimes I forget to introduce myself, um, but I think it's important that I do. It's important to say your name sometimes. You know, self-identify, remind myself of who I am. I'm here on this planet. Should try it sometime. I don't know. Might bring you some joy. Might be also kind of weird. Yeah. Anyways, I am so happy to have almost 100% of my voice back after this last week of getting pretty damn sick. I, um, yeah, I'm actually waiting for like official test results back, but, um, it looks like it's some type of bacterial infection. Um, not necessarily the normal strain of strep A, which is what is the most common strain of strep A. I didn't know there was multiple strains of strep, but, um, yeah, it's like a mystery, but you know what? I'm on antibiotics and I went to the emergency room just a couple of days ago and they gave me, uh, they gave me this wonderful steroid, like this oral steroid that I had to drink. And it seriously brought down so much of the swelling. It felt like my tonsils were the size of like planets and then they shrunk down to like golf balls. That's the huge difference that I felt. And it seriously was so fucking painful. I I was crying. Like, I was. I was in so much pain. I couldn't, like, really eat very well. I just did a lot of liquids. Um, and then I was really, really tired. Um, and I had the biggest headache. And I had a super... I had a... I, would, I shouldn't say a super high fever because we're in a pandemic where COVID is, like, you can have fevers like beyond 102 and stuff. But I did actually reach 102 at one point and naturally really nervous that, you know, fuck, do I have COVID? But then these spots on my tonsils appeared about a day after these this fever and this all this other pain and the body chills and, you know, all the stuff that had very similar correlations to COVID. And I thought, that's not COVID. There's something on my tonsils that's causing this fever. And my body's trying to kill it by having, you know, a high, my raising the body temperature because it produces, you know, the, the immune system boosts up when the temperature in your body rises. Um, anyways, I just have to share this whole journey with you all because it was crazy. And this is actually the second time that I've gotten tested for COVID because I actually got sick a couple months back when I was working for, um, I actually, for a little bit worked for a small amount of time. I worked for, um, I worked at a daycare for a little bit and I got sick from a kid and I'm pretty sure I know how the kid like sneezed in my face and I was like, oh my God, that's disgusting. And then I got sick. Uh, I'm such a germaphobe too. I'm like, I don't like, I don't like being that close to germs. Like it really like, especially with, I love kids, but like, they just I have so many germs. It's really disturbing to me. I'm like, um, you little germies, okay, stay away. I like to look, at, you know, like hi. You can say hi, but I, I, I don't want you to come near me. Okay, no hugs, thank you. <laughs> so, anyways, um, 
T became my best friend during this time, and I already loved tea, but it was so th- soothing to just drink some tea. And then, you know what else was my best friend? Painkillers. Because that shit was painful, and not even ibuprofen was working. I'm telling you, I was taking 600 milligrams, which is prescription strength of ibuprofen, and that shit was not helping. So then, my mom gave me oxycodone, which was fun, but it only lasted for four hours, but it was really fun to be on. Um, you feel really loopy and I pass the hell out. That shit makes me so tired. Um, I've only taken it like one other time, but this was a really fun, that was a fun time to take it. It just made me feel happier. <laughs> I wasn't feeling very, feeling really depressed actually. Cause you know, your body, you're not feeling well. And then in the physical affecting the mental and vice versa. Yeah. It's hard to be sick. And you know what? <sighs> it just made me learn a lesson. It's just like, fuck, man, health is so important. Like our health, it's like if you don't have your health, it's like, what do you have? You know, and especially like I know we're in a pandemic and like so many other people who are immune compromised and stuff. I'm not speaking for myself, but I'm speaking of people that I know that are immune compromised and the very real realities of this, you know, very deadly virus going around and, you know, them having the fear and anxiety naturally that they would, you know, about getting sick. Um, It's just, it's like, you know, it's so real and it just really makes me appreciate like the days that I do feel good, you know, and the day, like my health and, you know, instead of like, looking at what I don't have or what my body doesn't look like, it really brings me back to gratitude. Um, And definitely with all the work that I've been doing on my, you know, self as far as self-image and whatnot, it's gotten better. But like things like this remind me like, yo, your health is way important. Like it's not something to just pretend like it's fine. Like, no, you need to get your sleep. You know, you need to eat the food that helps nourish your body you need to, I'm not talking about diets here, guys. I'm talking about like, you know, having a variety of a diet and it's okay to eat the sweets. And of course, I'm not saying I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. Y'all know that I've been doing intuitive eating and that's the complete opposite of dieting. So, um, and it feels really good to feel like I'm starting to move in a more positive direction for myself too. And a lot more acceptance of myself and who I am with that, with that, in that regard. I know I'm kind of rambling, but it's all it's all related, yo. But I do want to say that today, actually, we're going to be venturing into um, the Universal Christ is going to be the first chapter, and it does got a lot of um, content in it. So I do want to respect that time because I do definitely want to get to that because um, it's really good stuff. So I'll, I will not talk too much because my voice is like just getting back to just getting back to being 100 percent. It's not quite there. But um, antibiotics are amazing. Thank you for modern medicine. Thank you, doctors. And yeah, I was really thankful that I, I actually got seen. I was having real mad anxiety. I thought I wasn't going to get seen because suspicion of COVID and all that stuff. And oh, Lord, no. But the doctor was like, no, no, no. This is a bacterial infection. He like took one look at my, my tonsils. Like, yep. <laughs> I was like, I told you there's these disgusting white spots. I'm like, he's like, yeah. <laughs> It was actually really funny. He was great. I really, I had a great uh, emergency room, not emergency room, excuse me, urgent care visit. But yo, I just want to, I want to acknowledge something that's really fucking annoying is, um, I'm going to say this because I can. 
I'm still waiting on health insurance for my company, and that's some bullshit because we're in a pandemic. I should I was supposed to be insured in December. It hasn't happened. Um, so I'm still I'm like calling these people up, harassing them on the phone, so to speak, because I deserve her health insurance. And it says as a part of my plan, I was supposed to have it. And so it's just been a lot of bullshit. There's I'm not going to go into much in depth of that, but I just want to say, yo, the healthcare system in this country is fucked. And you know, I, I definitely work for a big organization, a big company, so it doesn't make any sense. It's very frustrating. Um, it's very, very frustrating. And then I got sick, so, yo, I had to pay out of pocket, but I'm going to get reimbursed when I get health insurance, hopefully. Um, it should be should be coming in soon. That's what they tell me. But um, I just want to acknowledge that. Like, that's part of the reason, too. It's like we don't – most of the country, there's people – like, you know, populations in our country – um, and I'm only speaking about the United States right now who don't have access to health insurance. And there's like all this bullshit stigmatization around like, oh, what populations are getting COVID? And they're just completely not looking at what the, all the factors are. It's so it is so fucked up and it's so um, ignorant to not take consideration of what that population has access to. I'm talking about minorities. I'm talking about, you know, whatever kind of group i mean you use your imagination that's the reality and it just kills me when i hear people say like oh no it's because like and i literally am not i'm not making this shit up i I heard a lady say i don't want to talk about this but i heard a lady say like well yeah black people are getting it more but i'm like she didn't realize why that was or like she just was like attributing attributing them catching covid because of their ethnicity because of their well, their ethnicity is technical way to say it, but we could also say race, but race is something that we created as humans. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, that. it just was really infuriating to hear. And I was like, I just can't even believe that flew out of your mouth. But you know what? I'm not really surprised. So that's my soapbox on that shit. But just fucking know the shit before you start saying stuff. Like, don't just start saying whatever comes out of your, like, you thought this was a great idea and then you're just going to say it because you think you know all the facts. You just don't. You need to do your damn research. And we all do. I'm speaking for myself here, too. It's very important. Like, let's not stigmatize each other. Let's just not do it. OK, that's what I needed to say today. I guess I really needed to talk about that. But, hey, we're going to go ahead. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to transition us to the next part of the podcast, which will be our creative section, as well as setting intentions. All right. Stay with me, folks. Okay, so as we venture further into the podcast, especially with the content that's going to be shared, I would like to set some intentions. Okay, so I'm going to share my intention with this podcast episode. I'm going to make it specific, all right? And then I'm also going to be asking you all to think about what your intention is by listening to the podcast right now. What's your intention with this episode? What are you looking for to get whatever it is? So we're going to take some time to think about that. And as we think, I'm going to share my intention. My intention with this podcast episode is to spark joy. All right. And now, right before I read our creative portion of the podcast, I want to offer something that I've been learning that has brought me a lot of ease and peace into my day. 
I've been talking a lot about this app that I've been using. It's called 10%. I highly recommend it. It is a mindfulness meditation app. It's very important that those two words go together because they are actually meant to be together because it's a type of meditation. And this is a phrase that can help us ease our minds and our bodies into being present and also absorbing what is being said. And I'm going to go ahead and say those little phrases right now. You can also take a breath if you want right here. Nice inhale. And a nice exhale. You can say these to yourself after I say them to you. Whatever works. May you have ease. May you be happy. May you be safe. You can also switch it for yourself and you can say, use I statements like, may I have blank. And these words are interchangeable. You don't have to use those words. I just really like them. I feel like they're simple and that's the key. Simplicity is the key. All right. Thank you for taking that time to set that intention and to step into that moment of pause with me. I'm going to go ahead and read us a poem by Emily Dickinson. This poem is called By the Sea. I started early, took my dog, and visited the sea. The mermaids in the basement came out to look at me, and frigates in the upper floor extended hempen hands, presuming me to be a mouse, aground upon the sands. But no man moved me till the tide went past my simple shoe, and past my apron and my belt, and past my bodice too, and made me as he would eat me up, as holy as dew upon a dandelion sleeve, and then I started to. And he, he followed close behind, I felt his silver heel upon my ankle, and then my shoes would overflow with pearl. Until we meet the solid town, no man he seemed to know, and bowing with a mighty look at me, the sea withdrew. All right, this is going to be part one. Another Name for Everything. This is from Father Richard Rohr's book, The Universal Christ. Chapter 1. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Across the 30,000 or so varieties of Christianity, believers, of Je- believers love Jesus, and at least in theory seem to have no trouble accepting his full humanity and his full divinity. 
Many express a personal relationship with Jesus, perhaps a flash of inspiration of his intimate presence in their lives, perhaps a fear of his judgment or wrath. Others trust in his compassion and often see him as a justification for their worldviews and politics. Ain't that true? But how might the notion of Christ change the whole equation? Is Christ simply Jesus' last name? Or is it a revealing title that, that deserves our full attention? How is Christ's function or role different from Jesus's? What does scripture mean when Peter says in his very first address to the crowds after Pentecost that, quote, God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ, Acts 2.36, end quote. Weren't they always one and the same, starting at Jesus' birth? To answer these questions, we must go back and ask, what was God up to in those first moments of creation? Was God totally invisible before the universe began? Or is there even such a thing as before? Why did God create at all? What was God's purpose in creating? Is the universe itself eternal? Or is the universe a creation in time as we know it, like Jesus himself? Woo! He be bringing up a lot of questions. And I love it, but it's a lot of questions. <laughs> okay. Let's keep reading, shall we? Let's admit that we will probably never know the how or even the when of creation. But the question that religion tries to answer is mostly the why. Is there any evidence for why God created the heavens and the earth? What was God up to? Was there any divine intention or goal? Or do we even need a creator God to explain the universe? Totally viable, totally, totally viable question right there. Most of the perennial traditions have offered explanations, and they usually go something like this. Everything that exists in material form is the offspring of some primal source, which originally existed only as spirit. This infinite primal source somehow poured itself into, fin to, into finite, visible forms, creating everything from rocks to water, plants, organisms, animals, and human beings. Everything, everything that we see with our eyes this self-disclosure of whomever you call God into physical creation was the first incarnation, the general term for any enfleshment of spirit, long before the personal second incarnation that Christians believe happened with Jesus. To put this idea in Franciscan language, creation is the first Bible and it it existed for 13.7 billion years before the second Bible was written. 
And then he has a little asterisk and it says Romans 1.20 says the same in case you're wondering how this self-critique shows up in the Bible itself. He's referring to that verse with that um, thing that he just said. I'm going to continue on. When Christians hear the word, quote, incarnation, most of us think about the birth of Jesus, who personally demonstrated God's radical unity with humanity. But in his in this book, I want to suggest that the first incarnation was the moment described in Genesis 1, when God joined in unity with the physical universe and became the light inside of everything. This, I believe, is why light is the subject of the first day of creation, and its speed is now recognized as the one universal constant. The incarnation, then, is not only God's become not only God becoming Jesus. It is a much broader event, which is why John first describes God's presence in the general word, quote, flesh, John 1, 14. John is speaking of the ambiguous Christ that Carol Hauslander so vividly encountered, the Christ that the rest of us continue to encounter in other human beings, a mountain, a blade of grass, or a starling. You guys all remember, right, when I was reading that part from Carol Hauslander last week? Oh, I just love that. That was great. All right, just got two phone calls back to back when I'm trying to record a podcast up in this bitch. Okay, let's get back to this. All right, without further ado, let us return to the universal Christ. Everything visible, without exception, is the outpouring of God. What else could it really be? Christ is a word for the primordial template, Logos, from whom, quote, all things came into being and not one thing had its be- being except through him. John 1, 3. Seeing in this way has reframed, re-energized, and broadened my own religious belief and I believe it could be Christianity's unique contribution among the world's religions. If you can overlook how John uses masculine pronouns to describe something that is clearly beyond gender, you can see that he is giving us a sacred cosmology in his prologue. One, so this is John 1, 1 verses 1 through 18, and not just a theology. Yes, I'm so glad he brought up the gender pronouns. That shit pisses me off. Just putting my two cents in there. So thank you. Thank you for acknowledging that. All right, back to the book. Long before Jesus's personal incarnation, Christ was deeply embedded, embedded in all things, as all things. The first lines of the Bible says that, quote, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters, end quote, or the formless void, and immediately the material universe became fully visible in its depth and meaning. Genesis 1, 1. Time, of course, has no meaning at this point. The Christ mystery is the New Testament's attempt to name the visibility or see-ability that occurred on the first day. Remember, 
Light is not so much what you directly see as that by which you see everything else. That's real deep right there. Take a moment to pause. I'm going to repeat it one more time. Light is not so much what you directly see as that by which you see everything else. This is why in John's gospel, Jesus Christ makes the almost boastful statement, quote, I am the light of the world, John 8, 12. Jesus Christ is the, I'm not really sure how to say this word. I'm going to go for it anyways. I should probably look up these things before I start reading, but I'm going to skip it. So Christ, Jesus is the blank of matter and spirit put together. I think he kind of means like he encompasses matter and spirit. Jesus Christ does put together in one place. So we ourselves can put it together in all places and enjoy things in their fullness. It can even enable us to see as God sees if that is not expecting too much. I think the word was amalgam. A-M-A-L-G-A-M. Y'all tell me how to pronounce that next time. All right. So here we go. Scientists have discovered that what looks like darkness to the human eye is actually filled with tiny particles called neutrinos, silvers of light that pass through, slivers of light that pass through the entire universe. Apparently, there is no such thing as total darkness anywhere, even though the human eye thinks there is. John's gospel was more accurate than what we, than we realized when it described Christ as, quote, a light that darkness cannot overcome, end quote, one five. Knowing that the inner light of things cannot be eliminated or destroyed is deeply hopeful. And as if that is not enough, John's choice of an active verb, quote, the true light was coming into the world, 119, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 9, verse 9 shows us that the Christ mystery is not a one-time event, but an ongoing process through time, as constant as the light that fills the universe. And, quote, God saw that light was good, Genesis 1-3. Hold on to that. Yo, he just said some stuff right there that's really, really, really deep, and it really does make you rethink things. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna pause there for a minute as I drink my tea. Some good stuff right there. Mm. All right, continuing on, folks. But the symbolism deepens and tightens. Christians believe that the universal presence was later born of a woman under the law, Galatians 4.4, in a moment of chronological time. This is the great Christian leap of faith, which not everybody, everyone is willing to make. We daringly believe that God's presence was poured into a single human being so that humanity and divinity can be seen to be operating as one in him and therefore in us. But instead of saying that God came into the world through Jesus, maybe it would be better to say that Jesus came out of an already Christ-soaked world. The second incarnation flowed out of the first out of God's loving union with physical creation. 
if that is that still sounds strange to you, just trust me for a bit. I promise you it will only deepen and broaden your faith in both Jesus and the Christ. This is an important reframing of of who God might be and what such a God is doing and what a God we might need if we want to find a better response to the question that opened this chapter. My point is, when I know that the world around me is both the hiding place and the revelation of God, I can no longer make a significant distinction between the natural and the supernatural, between the holy and the profane. A divine voice makes this exactly clear to a very resistant Peter in Acts 10. Everything I see and know is indeed one uni-verse, revolving around one coherent center. This divine presence seeks correction, or excuse me, this, wow, that was a slip. This divine presence seeks connection and communication, not separation or division, except for the sake of an even deeper future union. What a difference this makes in the way I walk through the world, in how I encounter every person I see in the course of my day. It is as though everything that seems disappointing and fallen, all the major pushbacks against the flow of history, can now be seen as one whole movement, still enchanted and making or made use of by God's love. All of it must somehow be un. Excuse me. All of it must somehow be usable and filled with potency, even the things that appear as betrayals or crucifixions. Why else and how else could we love this world? Nothing and no one needs to be excluded. Yes, 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 yes. No one is excluded. Yes. Come on, people. All right. Back to the book. The kind of wholeness I am describing is something that our postmodern world no longer enjoys and even vigorously denies. I always wonder why, after the triumph of rationalism in the Enlightenment, we would prefer such incoherence. I thought we had agreed that coherence, pattern, and some final meaning were good. But... Intellectuals in the last century have denied the existence and power of such great wholeness. And in Christianity, we have made the mistake of limiting the Creator's presence to just one human manifestation, Jesus. The the implications of our very selective seeing have been massively destructive for history and humanity. Creation was deemed profane, a pretty accident a mere backdrop for the real drama of God's concern, which is always and only for us. Or, even more troublesome, him. It is impossible to make individuals feel sacred inside of a profane, empty, or accidental universe. This way of seeing makes us feel separated and competitive, striving to be superior instead of deeply connected, instead of ever larger circles of union. But God loves things by becoming them. God loves things by uniting with them, not by excluding them.
Through the act of creation, God manifested the eternal outward flow of divine presence into the physical and material world. Ordinary matter is a hiding place for the spirit, for spirit, excuse me, and thus the very body of God. Honestly, what else could it be? If we believe as Orthodox Jews, Christians, and Muslims do that, quote, one God created all things. Since the very beginning of time, God's spirit has been revealing its glory and goodness through the physical creation. So many of the Psalms already assert this, speaking of, quote, rivers clapping their hands and, quote, mountains singing for joy. When Paul wrote, there is only Christ, he is everything, and he is in everything, Colossians 3.11, was he a naive pantheist, or did he really understand the full implications of the gospel of incarnation? God seems to have chosen to manifest the invisible in what we call the visible, so that all things visible are the revelation of God's endless, diffusive spiritual energy. Once a person recognizes that, it is hard to ever be lonely in this world again. This is going to be subtitled, A Universal and Personal God. Numerous scriptures make it very clear that the, this Christ has existed from the beginning. John 1, verses 1 through 18, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and Ephesians 1, through, uh, verses 3. 3 through 14, being primary sources. So the Christ cannot be cotrimonious with Jesus, but by attaching the word Christ to Jesus as if it were his last name instead of a means by which God's presence has enchanted all matter through all of history, Christians got pretty sloppy in their thinking. Our faith became a competitive theology with various parochial theories of salvation instead of a universal cosmology inside of which we can all live with an inherent dignity. Right now, perhaps more than ever, we need a God as big as still expanding as the still expanding universe or educated people will continue to think of a god as a mere add-on to a world that is already awesome, beautiful, and worthy of praise in itself. If Jesus is not also presented as Christ, I predict more and more people will not so much actively rebel against Christianity as just gradually lose interest in it. Many research scientists, biologists, and social workers have honored the Christ mystery without needing any specific Jesus language at all. The divine was never seemed, has never seemed very worried about, about us getting his or her name exact, name right. Exodus, see, look at Exodus three fourteen, As Jesus himself says, do not believe those who say, Lord, Lord, Matthew 7, 21. Luke 6, 46. He says it is those who, quote, do right, that matter, not those who, quote, say it right. Yet verbal orthodoxy has been Christianity's, gotta turn the page, preoccupation at times 
even allowing us to burn people at the stake for not, for, for not, quote, saying it right. Ooh, there's some political stuff in here. Love it. First of all, it's like literally not possible to not be, you can't not, not. Does that make sense? You can't, you have to be political. It's in, it's in everything. It's ridiculous. If you say you can't be or you don't want to be. All right, continuing on. This is what happens when we focus solely on an exclusive Jesus, on having a, quote, personal relationship with him and on what he can do to save you and me from eternal fiery torment. For the first 2000 years of Christianity, we framed our faith in terms of problem and a threat. But if you believe Jesus' main purpose is to provide a means of personal individual salvation, it is all too easy to think that he doesn't have anything to do with human history, with war or injustice or destruction of nature, or anything that contradicts our ego's desire or our cultural biases. We ended up spreading our national cultures under the rubric of Jesus instead of a universally liberating message under the name of Christ. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Mm. Okay. Without a sense of inherent sacredness of the world, of every tiny bit of life and death, we struggle to see God in our own reality, let alone to respect reality, protect it, or love it. The consequences of this ignorance are all around us, seen in the way we have exploited and damaged our fellow human beings, the dear animals, the web of growing things, the land the water, and the very air. It took until the 21st century for a pope to clearly say this in Pope Francis's poetic document. Um, I believe this is how I'm, I'm going to try to pronounce some Latin right here. It's real hard. Laudato si, maybe. May it not be too late, and may the unnecessary gap between practical seeing science and holistic seeing religion be fully overcome they still need each other what i am calling in this book an incarnational worldview is the profound recognition of the presence of the divine in literally every thing and every one it is the key to mental and spiritual health as well to a kind of basic content and happiness an incar incarnational worldview is the only way we can reconcile, reconcile our inner world with the outer world. Unity with diversity, physical with spiritual, individual with corporate, and divine with human. In the early 2nd century, the church began to call itself Catholic, meaning universal. As it recognized its own universal character and message, only later was Catholic subscribed by the wor word Roman as the church lost its sense of delivering a undivided and inclusive message. Then after an entirely needed reformation in 1517, we just kept dividing into ever smalling, excuse me, ever smaller and competing fractals. Paul had already warned the Corinthians about this, asking a question that should still stop us in our tracks, quote, can Christ be parceled out? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 12. But we've done plenty of parceling in the years since those words were written. 
Christianity has become clannish, to put it mildly, but it need not remain there. The full Christian leap of faith is trusting that Jesus, together with Christ, gave us one human but fully accurate window into the eternal now that we call God. John 8, 5, 8, Colossians 1, 15, Hebrews 1, 3, 2 Peter 3, 8. This is a leap of faith that many believe they have made when they say, quote, Jesus is God. But strictly speaking, those words are not theologically correct. What? Let's see what he has to say next. Christ is God, and Jesus is the Christ's historical manifestation in time. Jesus is a third someone, not just God and not just man, but God and human together. I'm going to let you all absorb that. Also, I got to drink my tea. Okay. That blew my mind right there. I love it. Continuing on. Such is the unique and central message of Christianity. And it's, it has massive theological, psychological, and political implications. And, and very good ones at that. But if we cannot put these two seemingly opposites of God and human together in Jesus Christ, we usually cannot put these two together in ourselves or in the rest of our physical universe. That has been our major impasse up to now. Jesus was supposed to break Jesus was supposed to be the code breaker, but without un excuse me, but without uniting him. Is that the, yeah, you Yeah, I'm not really sure. But without uniting him to Christ, I'm not sure if that's what he means. I wonder. Maybe this word's incorrect. I don't know. We're just going to keep going. But without um, uniting him, it's not uniting. It's unknitting. 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 Oh, my God. Wow. Sometimes these words be getting away from me. Sorry, guys. It's But without unknitting him to Christ, we lost the core of what Christianity might have become. That's very important that I repeated that because I would have just totally contradicts what I just said or what he just said. All right. Hope you all got that one. Woo. Reading's hard. <laughs> all right. We almost done though. So stay with me. A merely personal God becomes tribal and sentimental and a merely universal God never leaves the realm of abstract theory and phil philosophical principles. But when we learn to put them together, Jesus and Christ give us a God who is both personal and universal. The Christ mystery anoints all physical matter with eternal purpose from the very beginning. We should not be surprised that the word we translate from the Greek as Christ becomes the Hebrew word. Oh, I don't want to say Hebrew. It's hard. I think it's, I'm going to totally not. I'm going to spell it instead of say it because I don't want to butcher this beautiful language. M-E-S-A-C-H meaning the anointed one or Messiah. He reveals that all is anointed. Many are still praying and waiting for something that has already been given to us three times. First in creation, second in Jesus, quote, so that we could hear him, see him with our eyes, watch him and touch him with our hands. The word who is life 
1 John verses 1 through 2. And third, in the ongoing beloved community, what Christians call the body of Christ, which is slowly evolving throughout all of human history, Romans 8, 18. We are still in the flow. Given our present evolution of consciousness and especially the historical and technological access we now have to the, quote, whole picture, I now wonder if a sincere person can even have a healthy and holy personal relationship with God if that God does not also connect them to the universal. Good question. Uh, A personal God cannot mean a smaller God. Nor can a God make you in any way smaller, or such would not be God. That's true. (laughs) Ironically, millions millions of the very devout who are waiting for the second coming have largely missed the first and the third. I'll say it again. God loves things by becoming them. And as we've just seen... God did so in the creation of the universe and of Jesus and continues to do so in the ongoing human body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. And even in simple elements like bread and wine. Sadly, we have a whole section of Christianity that is looking for, even praying for, an exit from God's ongoing creation towards some kind of Armageddon or rapture. Talk about missing the point. The most effective lies are often the really big ones. Woo, woo, woo. Yes, say it, speak it, speak it. Oh, yeah. I'm so stoked that he's saying this, all this stuff. Oh, this is so good. I like it. I don't know if you like it, but I like it. The evolving universe expanding Christ mystery in which all of us take part is subject is the subject of this book. Jesus is a map for the time-bound and personal level of life, and Christ is the blueprint for all time and space and life itself. Both revealed the universal pattern of self-emptying and infilling Christ and death and resurrection, Jesus, which is the process we have called holiness, salvation, or just growth at different times in our history. For Christians, this universal pattern perfectly mimics the inner life of the Trinity in Christian theology. Excuse me, I burped. I'm so sorry. I hope you guys didn't hear that. You probably did. Which is our template for how reality unfolds since all things are created, quote, in the image and likeness of God, Genesis 1, 26 through 27. For me, a true comprehension of the full Christ mystery is the key to the foundational reform of the Christian religion, which alone will move us beyond any attempts to corral. I'm sorry, I lost my space right here. Hmm. To corral or capture God into our exclusive group. As the New Testament dramatically clearly puts it before the world was made, We have been chosen in Christ, claimed as God's own, and chosen from the very beginning, Ephesians 1, 3, and 11. So that he could bring everything together under the headship of Christ, Ephesians 1, 10. If all of this is true, we have a theological basis for a very natural religion that includes everybody. 
The problem was solved from the beginning. Take your Christian head off, shake it wildly, and put it back on. Next part is going to be subtitled, Jesus Christ and the Beloved Community. And this is going to be the sum up of this chapter. We're almost done. The Franciscan philosopher and theologian John Duns Scotus, 1266-1308, whom I studied for four years, tried to express this primal and cosmic notion when he wrote that, quote, God wills Christ first of all as the summon opius dei, or the supreme greatest work. By the way, those were some Latin words in there. You probably caught on to that, but that wasn't me messing up words that time. It was me trying to say Latin. In other words, God's first idea and priority was to make the God shelf both, excuse me, God's self, not a shelf, God's self, both visible and shareable. The word used in the Bible for this idea was logos, which was taken from the Greek philo uh, philosophy in which I would translate as the blueprint or the primordial pattern for reality, the whole of creation, not just Jesus is the beloved community, the partner in the divine dance. Everything is the, is, is the child of God. No exceptions. When you think of it, what else could anything be? All, create, all creatures must in some way carry the divine DNA of their creator. Unfortunately, the notion of faith that emerged in the West was much more, uh, more a rational ascent to the truth of certain mental beliefs rather than a calm and hopeful trust that God is inherent in all things and that this whole thing is going somewhere good. Predictably, we soon separated intellectual belief, which tends to differentiate and limit from love and hope, which unite and thus eternalize as Paul says in his great hymn to love, quote, there are only three things that last, faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, all else passes. Faith, hope, and love are the very nature of God and thus the nature of all being. Such goodness cannot die, which is what we mean when we say heaven. Each of these three great virtues must always include the other two in order to be authentic. Love is always hopeful and faithful. Hope is always loving and faithful. And faith is always loving and hopeful. They are the very nature of God and thus of all being. Such wholeness is personified in the cosmos as Christ and in human history as Jesus. So God is not just love, John, 1 John 4, 16, but also absolute faithfulness and hope itself. And the energy of this faithfulness and hope flows out from the creator towards all created beings, producing all growth, healing in every springtime. No one religion will ever encompass the depth of such faith. No ethnicity has a monopoly on hope. No nationality can control or limit this flow of such universal love. 
These are the ambiguous gifts of the Christ mystery hidden inside of, inside of all that has ever lived, died, and will live again. I hope the vision is coming clearer. It is in a way so simple and common sense that, is, that it is hard to teach. It is mostly a matter of unlearning and learning to trust your Christian common sense. If you will allow me to say that, Christ is a good and simple metaphor for absolute wholeness, complete incarnation, and the integrity of creation. Jesus is the archetypal human, just like us, Hebrew, Hebrews 4.15, who showed us what the full human might look like if we could fully live, if we could fully live into it. Ephesians 4, 12 through 16. Frankly, Jesus came to show us how to be human much more than how to be spiritual. And the process still seems to be in its early stages. Without Jesus, the sheer scale and significance of our deep humanity is just too much and too good for our ordinary minds to imagine. But when we rejoin Jesus with Christ, we can begin a big imagining and a great work. All right. I hope you like that. I loved it. That is the end of chapter one from Richard Rohr's The Universal Christ. I will see you beautiful people, hear you, talk to you next week. Take care, my friends.